and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. Before the show today, I want to give an enormous thank you to Benson Lee, who sent me a message through yesindeedpod.com, which completely made my whole darn week. Here's the message in full. Hi there, just had to say that I have been enjoying your podcast immensely, and it has led me to some completely unexpected discoveries such as the work by Deep Way. Thank you for sharing such great work. Getting messages like this means the world to small podcasters like me, and I'm always thrilled to see them on Twitter or in my inbox. If you want to make my day, leave a message, tweet or review. And if it touches my heart, it'll make the show's intro as well. This week, I'm talking to Kevin and Matthew of Miramorth Games about Atma, a role-playing game designed from the ground up for new players and single-session play. It's also designed to fit in the pocket of your cargo shorts or gaming bag, which is just excellent. It's currently on Kickstarter, so I encourage you to check it out as soon as possible. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. Today we're interviewing Kevin and Matthew of Merrimorth Games. Hi there. Hello. Hello. Why don't you um, take a moment to introduce yourselves and tell us what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having us. So uh, I'm Kevin. I am, I guess, one half of Miramorph Games along with my twin brother, Matthew. Yep. So yeah, we are literally just a tiny two-person, I guess, game thing. We do this mostly for fun on the side. We're actually just venturing into our first foray of making a role-playing game we have been playing role-playing games in varying capacities for years now, um, especially Power by the Apocalypse Dungeon World style things and uh, some Dungeons and Dragons as well. Do you want to tell us about that game, which I think is currently on Kickstarter? Yeah, absolutely. The game is Atma. It is a role-playing card game. It actually kind of grew out of some things we were doing on the side uh, related to role-playing game one-shots, especially ones that were derived from systems like Dungeon World. I think Atma itself actually exists because I brewed up a one-shot for my brother's bachelor party, and we later went back and repurposed that and expanded on it. So uh, in its current state, Atma is trying to sort of straddle the line between a role-playing game experience, but also a nice introductory, almost more board game-sized experience, Right. kind of focusing on trying to hit that niche where it's not an overwhelming thing. Oh, that's very much my style. I like lightweight games, which, you know, are good introductory games as well. It's always a good way for people to get into the industry. Yeah, I agree. Lightweight games tend to be (laughs) the ones I can find time for now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Big mood. Cool. Well, uh, do you want to give us a little bit of an elevator pitch of Atma? So from a gameplay side, Atma is basically meant to be a one-shot in your pocket. We have put a lot of thought into being able to create a product that in terms of component size, setup size, and rule complexity size really does fit into like the type of box you could throw in your bag, maybe even in your cargo shorts and bust out at some kind of you know convention during the, the evening hours and essentially have strangers walk up, sit down, no familiarity with the rules, maybe even no familiarity with role-playing games. Yeah. And two hours later, they're concluding essentially a complete role-playing game session. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, that sounds really cool. What kind of genres are you hitting with All that? of them. All of the genres. Cool. A universal system. Yeah. Genre-wise, I would say... it. If Overwatch were a genre, um, you could describe it perhaps as Overwatch adjacent. So we've been, rather than <laughs> to a sort of traditional swords and sorcery fantasy genre, it's kind of a hodgepodge of everything, but building off of maybe a modern day with sort of fantasy and sci-fi elements. Oh, okay, cool. You'll have to forgive me as I am not 
familiar with Overwatch. I'm not quite sure what notes that that kind of hits, but I get um, when I see art, I sort of think it of a kind of gonzo feel, you know, a little bit over the top and irreverent. I don't know if that kind of matches what Atma is about. Yeah, I would say, uh, especially early on when we were trying to do the world building, we were trying to find a space between like recognizable and familiar enough, you know, so sort of building off of modern day elements, right? But with enough space that sort of anything could fit, because yeah, at the end of the day, playing game experiences, you want those sort of over the top moments. So making sure that play into the world was part of it. So when we're talking about settings, then it is kind of modern-ish setting, or is it a modern alternate universe? Or we loosely framed it as modern but alternate universe, and some of that's just to ourselves from being 100% enslaved to like what has taken place in the real world. That kind of alternate timeline is always a bit more fun than <laughs> copying the world that we sit in. Yeah, so we've, we've talked a little bit about the mechanics, a card-based mechanic. Some of my, my favorite role-playing experiences have been ones that Powered by the Apocalypse-style games kind of introduced me to, so those sort of very narrative-forward, like, do what's fun, don't be sort of beholden to, like, 600 pages of rules. Matthew, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think I even kind of introduced you to some of those. Yeah, that was my first longer-format role-playing experience was with a Dungeon World derivative that Kevin made. Cool. Yeah, so we were already kind of in that space of, like, having... An appreciation for what style of role-playing game we liked and like what elements we liked out of it then the other half though was still at the end of the day like you usually have a like a source book which is you know multiple hundreds of pages perhaps you have the playbooks you have campaigns that tend to span you know weeks months or even years yeah but meanwhile like, i was I did a bunch of prep to take, you know, for an evening weekend away for his bachelor party. So we ended up realizing like, oh, we could derive that down. All this prep could be captured on cards. That gives you the chance to add illustrations, which is sort of an unbelievable shortcut in terms of preparation and world building. When you can have like a picture to describe, whether it's to show the players, just for you to eyeball and like derive ideas from. Yeah, yeah. It was very much my kind of jam. I really like card-based role-playing games anyway. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast. And it's certainly something that I have got more and more into as I've played more and more games. Cards used in a different way. Yeah, that sounds that sounds very much up my street. So <laughs> let's hear a bit more about it. Again, the card sort of started as a way to take you know, pages and pages of prep and try to capture it in a way where we could then kind of codify it and make it easily accessible to somebody who maybe wasn't used to what it takes to prep. So we wound up with basically a deck of GM cards that break into sort of different categories to kind of give you those leaping off points. So the idea is you have a card that sort of just sets the, the backdrop of where you're adventuring. You have cards that kind of give you an overarching quest. You have more granular cards that give you like locations and kind of help give you some breadcrumbs to just spur your idea of how to lead the players through them. Yeah. And then you have, of course, you know, NPC style cards. And laid over top of all that is basically something that kind of derives off of the Powered by Apocalypse dice rolling, but even more streamlined to the point of finding a way to manage the, the tempo, which is something I feel like GMs learn over time. We sort of layered that in by essentially having like players roll dice, you know, six good dice rolls basically mean players are kind of controlling the narration. Poor dice rolls are just feeding the GM tokens, and the tokens are essentially framed as 
a mechanic via which the GM takes control of the narration. Oh, that's cool. So that's kind of a reverse fate point economy, if you like. In fate, when you pay a token, you basically get to seize control of the narrative. But in this case, you're actually putting the players in the narrative control, and it's the is up to the GM to kind of seize control by luck, I suppose, when the, when the dice fail. That makes it a lot less GM heavy, if you see what I mean. Um, looks a lot of less prep. I'm always down with that. <laughs> as a forever GM. That's what we've been finding. It's like, you know, there's essentially the heavy workload, especially for an ongoing campaign, but even for a one-shot for the GM to prepare. Yeah. Get rid of some of that with improvisation, but improvisation is a skill you need to learn somewhere. We've actually tested it, so Matthew had never GM'd a game. Yeah. And yeah. stuck the cards in front of him and said, here you go, and uh, he got through it. Yeah, and like those kind of tools, they do throw players in at the deep end when it comes to being a new GM, but... Like, that's the only way you can do it. <laughs> I, I don't right. feel like it's worthwhile sitting down with a 400, 500 page rule book to learn how to be a DM before you start playing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's how you learn to play. I think you learn to play by example. And sometimes Baptism of Fire is the best example that you can get. Even if you do it wrong, that's kind of, you can still have fun, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You're only doing it wrong if nobody is having fun. <laughs> right. I have found typically that that does not happen. <laughs> Well, that sounds really cool, and it is now in Kickstarter, so that's exciting. Are you kickstarting so you can get cards printed and that kind of thing? Yeah, because it's got a, a decent number of, of cards, um, the production cost is, I don't know how it would compare to like a booklet, but it's enough that we don't want to just go make it if there isn't a demand. Um, we've been playtesting it now for over six months, so all the feedback we've gotten has been really good. Uh, yeah, it's to raise money for that initial print run to get that uh, physical product made. It's the physical product, which sounds like it's, you know, the most worthwhile here, you know, uh, having those cards in front of you. That sounds great. The uh, pandemic has actually put us in an interesting spot. It's actually really hard to play test a physical product when you can't meet in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is the kind of thing I was talking about the other day with another interviewee um, who was saying that they love the game for the Queen, which is fantastic if you have the deck of cards, but it can't be played online very effectively. So they replace the deck with a table that you roll on instead, which is really cool. <laughs> it's kind of a neat twist on that. So yeah, playtesting during a pandemic has been difficult for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Particularly if the if the game that you have is kind of focused on a more board gamey slash card gamey aspect. Um, so how have you got around that? How have you been, um, how have you managed it? Um, that was an interesting challenge. So ironically, like what we were hoping would would set out my part, which is the fact that unlike most role-playing games, it has physical elements besides just pen and paper. Yeah. Became a challenge. Fortunately, or I guess luckily, I have a software development background. So as part of my free time during the pandemic, I was actually able to do some rapid learning and build a crude but usable virtual tabletop specifically for Atma. Wow, that's fantastic. So, and prior to that, we had alternatives. Matthew had done a lot of work making sure we could play it via um, tabletop simulator. Is that right? Cool. Not everybody has access to tabletop simulator. So we were actually able to, uh, in the course of about three weeks, build a, our own virtual tabletop. And so we've actually been using that now to run games for two months, I think. Wow, I'm really impressed. <laughs> Is that the kind of thing that you would develop in the future? You know, so um, your players can have access to can have access to an app to play the game. Would that that be something that you'd be interested in doing? Or interested? Yes, that's a great question. It's possible we'll have even figured this answer out 
by the time the Kickstarter is running. Uh-huh. We have found enough use in it that we absolutely want to make sure it's available to players. And the biggest questions are solely around balancing what I am technically capable of developing with what we want to make available. Sounds like a good candidate for a stretch goal then. <laughs> I would love it if, if we wind up in a future where the the backing on the physical one is enough that we can do things like just say, okay, we can you know, make the online one broadly available. Yeah. But in the meantime, we've made, I guess, like, We've been using it a ton for playtesting, but we've also just left the essentially the f- sort of first nugget of content basically just turned on for free for anybody to play. Oh, that's lovely. So one of the reasons I'm primarily interested in games that are lightweight and easy to play is that in a few years' time, I'm hoping to be able to teach my own children about how to play role-playing games. So I'm always interested in games that have these very rapid physical components that let you rapid prototype a story, if you like, you know, that let you um, hash out how to tell a story in a gamified way. Mm-hmm. How accessible do you feel that like your game is for young people as well as experienced role players? Um, so I think system-wise, it should hopefully, fingers crossed, be super accessible. Um, in fact, I made the one shot for my brother's bachelor party Separately then, so we have three younger sisters. I actually made an, another version of that one shot to try getting, getting them into role playing. It wasn't entirely their jam. We only played for a month or two. But the, the work that went into that also kind of bled forward into Atma. Things like simplifying the stats, like breaking away from tropes that get ingrained in your head if you've played D&D for years that don't have to be that way. Yeah, yeah. I would say that even though they they didn't end up being sort of heavy role players from a mechanic standpoint, like it was all smooth sailing. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. The only thing we haven't, I guess, figured out for sure is to what level, I guess, like the specific setting content, like how how young. That yeah, I mean, to some extent, like if you have a if you have a supervised game where it's an adult taking children through it, we can just leave elements out. You know, it's not like we're totally beholden to the source material anyway. It's kind of that frame work for a game that you pick up and run with because if it's straightforward enough and like the familiarity with established tropes that exist even in children's media are still there then it it can be really easy to tell stories with this sort of framework which is you know pretty much what people want even when they're a bit older (laughs) right that does remind me though i think even early on we had somebody who they had either played it or just joined our channel interested in playing it who like two seconds into reading the rules was already brainstorming how you could adapt the overall framework to content specifically for like younger kids yeah exactly i'm actually kind of hoping that pans out and and he comes back to us in a few months being like hey i've totally redone your system specifically towards that audience because that sounds awesome yeah i'd love that i'd love to hear if that comes to fruition that would be wonderful yeah i just feel like these games that are kind of rooted as as much as in board games as they are as in role-playing games are a really good in-between step if you want to get people into role-playing games Mm -hmm. the easiest way to do it is to attack it from an angle of you play it in a board gamey way rather than you sit down with a pencil and paper and you tell stories together which is whilst it's really good fun and it's very rewarding is kind of intimidating for for a first-time player so yeah it's interesting to me that you say you know it came out of work i did for a, a bachelor party because that sounds like the kind of environment where you're dealing with people who have probably not played role-playing games before and if that was a huge success then that's fantastic and that's a, <laughs> a merit to the system if you can transcribe that into a situation where you're playing with people with whom you've not played before or who have not played before 
Yeah. Yeah. It sounds very exciting. Yeah. Amusingly, I think the uh, the one we ran for the bachelor party, we actually didn't finish. It was still pretty early on in my attempts to boil sort of one shots down. And I, I had a habit of over planning and under pacing. So we got, you know, halfway through it. And then people were like, all right, we're ready to take a break. Now we when we say like, what we're shooting for, you know, two hours, two and a half hours. Now we have some actual serious testing behind like, is that feasible? And it took a bit to get there. Yeah. Do you have ways to structure that? Like, do you have yeah. rules built in that, that structure that play? There are, I guess, formal ways to do it, and then informal ones, um, which we still kind of right. highlight. So one of the biggest parts, right, is like the GM fundamentally controls. Yeah. It was just acknowledging, even in the rules, that like, if you're running the game and you are not the person keeping things on track, like your game's not going to stay on track easily. And then coupled with that was here are the tools that the system gives you to stay on track. Things like you're going to go through three scenes and then you're done, right? You have goals that are explicit up front. You then work to weave them into the story, but it kind of helps you. It helps you streamline that portion of the narrative where everybody's like, okay, like what do we do? Let's all walk around like knocking on all the walls till we find the secret door, right? Right. It just skips you straight to, yes, there's a secret door. Yeah. And some of it is simple things like telling the GM up front, like if your goal is to stay on track for two hours and you know you're playing through three scenes, like keep an eye on the clock and if you've got a scene 35 minutes like don't stop the fun but be aware like you're kind of hitting the expiration date where you might want to move the action forward yeah i mean that sounds like a really good way of pacing it if you're saying it should take this amount of time <laughs> so if you have three scenes then yeah yeah you do the math yeah that sounds very simple effective <laughs> and once you have the tools to like kind of understand how to pace it then you're free to ignore them like yeah I was in a game that started, I think, two and a half hours before this interview. And I was like, oh, I'll have time. We were pacing, the GM was running it and pacing it very differently. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll have to explain my character's exit, you know, at the end of scene two, but all good. Yeah, there you go. So there's a prime example that it can be done. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it sounds really cool. I would actually really like to, to see it and to try it out. It sounds very much my jam, so... Absolutely. Cool. So you say it's designed for one shots rather than campaign play. Do you want to discuss what to you is more exciting about a one shot than long term play? I'll chime in on that first, Kevin. So Kevin got me into role playing and uh, he ran a full campaign for us over, I think, more than a year. And in the time since, I've been in one or two others. But what I've found is uh, it's very hard to keep a, a group together and interested and people are having their own kids and stuff. And uh, so it just everything stretches out. It takes a long time um, and it can be difficult, especially with the same people. And when we were starting this out, we kind of started aiming for something where it doesn't matter what availability people have. It's uh, everybody can get together, everybody can experience it and have fun, and then you're done. And if you can't meet again next week, it's not a big deal. I agree. Like, I'd never been able to hold down a group for very long at all. I had a long-term group in university. That was a long time ago. Um, and since I have sporadically played on mushers and on play-by-post, and the short-term format is one that a lot of people are much more willing to commit to. So the most successful games I've had have been ones that do have a defined endpoint, like The Quiet Year and Fall of Magic and games like that. And so I am really down with the idea that one-shots are very powerful and accessible way that people can get into role-playing games. Or even experienced role players can continue to enjoy them. And the other advantage is that that is the format that you have for convention games. You know, you don't have the luxury of playing a campaign over years and years and years. It's a good format. It's one I like a lot. 
as you can tell. <laughs> I'm excited about it. I guess to you know add to what Matthew said, one of the big things we realized early on, like I love campaign-based games because I love the character evolution and the storytelling that doesn't like just get abandoned after two hours. Yeah. There are so many role-playing games for that scenario. Like we could try and make one, it would get lost in the sea of it. But what they're, at least, and I, granted, I don't know all of them, but we were finding that a space for less than that, right? The idea that, like, Matthew runs a board game night, the same people don't even show up every week. They can't really, without D&D, this they can and actually have, which then ends up, quote-unquote, you trick board game players into playing a role-playing game. And hopefully, eventually, you turn some of them into those people who will come back and engage in those campaign-based systems. I think there's something to be said for that, yeah. It's an accessible in to people as well. Yeah, I'm totally trying to figure out how to turn it into a at least like micro-campaignable thing. Because some of the sessions that end, I really want to explore like one more chapter for that character next time around. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like the sound of that. Now I'm sort of philosophizing a bit, but sort of wondering whether or not the format of role-playing has changed such a lot over the years, such that now, I, I mean, I see a lot of indie one-shot games that come about. You know, there are fewer and fewer games that are designed for a long-term play. I just see a lot of short games that are really neat and cute and concise and get themes and settings across and are kind of there to be enjoyed as a kind of smorgasbord of content, if you like. You are picking and choosing from week to week which game you would like to play. Yeah, that does involve investment on the player side, but hey, guess what? Indie needs money, so maybe that's okay for people to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I'm wondering whether it's a kind of societal shift from people playing yeah. lots of games with one group over decades of play to yeah. people just meeting up more casually and enjoying games because these games are fun not because the other people are fun, <laughs> although they probably are. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for how gaming and how players are shifting. Yeah, I could definitely believe that. And your game is part of that, yeah. <laughs> I also really like your slogan, one shot in your pocket. I just, <laughs> I'm down with that. I, I, I would be the kind of person who would carry a deck of cards around in my pocket. We put a, a non-trivial amount of time into talking literally about the size of the box because, like, we, no joke, actually want it to fit... <laughs> Yeah, in cargo shorts. I mean, yeah, I'm down with down with designing clothes. Uh, sorry, actually, I'm down with designing clothes around games, but also designing games around clothes. Uh, the other way around is probably more important. That's right. If they can have a giant table designed for a game, somebody's going to make shorts designed for a game. Yeah, absolutely. Someone, somebody must have that on Kickstarter somewhere. <laughs> Gamer shorts. So I should ask you um, whether or not there's anything else you want to talk about. I would be remiss not to mention just how much uh, effort my brother puts in. So it's just the two of us, which means every visual element of the game you see, he drew it. He has done art, I don't know, since January of this year. He is cranking out card art. There's something like 300 plus illustrations in the base bundle of content we're doing. So I don't know, Matthew, if you want to talk about the art, but as the person not doing it, it's really impressive. I'm one of those people that gets attracted to products that have pictures. So uh, when we were talking about this, one of the things we, we knew we wanted was the ability to uh, to actually flesh out the world visually and share that with people. So we've had a lot of fun world building it together and uh, hopefully people enjoy it. Absolutely. It's great to work on a small team and I'm very impressed that you managed to put it together. Just single-handedly is not the word. Dual-handedly also doesn't feel like the right word as there are four hands between you, but, you know, there you go. So you tell us where we can find you online. Uh, you can find us, I think, at miramorphgames.com. 
There are links from there to our other minimal social media presences like Twitter um, and Facebook. We actually now have a Discord server specifically for Atma, which you can also find linked from mirrormorphgames.com. We would love it for anybody who's interested in the game. You're welcome to pop in. You can pretty much always find a pickup game that's scheduled to take place within the next few days. Cool. I encourage everybody to go and check that out because it does sound really cool. I think you two are quite active on the RPG Talk Discord server as well. Uh, yeah, we've been popping in there and I found a, a lot of folks who have kind of hopped over and joined us to check out the game, do a join a looking for group or something. So yeah, it's a, it's a good space. Um, so it's always good to meet new people where they're uh, sharing their work, sharing their art. So We've had uh, a lot of welcome too from the, I think the Dungeon World um, Discord specifically has been really help- welcoming. Cool. All that remains for me to say is <laughs> thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely no problem. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye. All right. Have a good night. Bye. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Kevin and Matthew for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. In two weeks, I'll be talking to one of my personal indie TTRPG heroes, Paul Sager of Half Mean Press. Paul is responsible for some of my favourite games out there. The Clay That Work, Nicotine Girls, Acts of Evil, and is a voice from the Forge era that really matters. We also spoke about Paul's new game, Traversa, an RPG about women ex-soldiers in a solarpunk future, which sounds truly incredible. Listen again in two weeks to find out more. It's still International Podcast Month, and all month I am reaching out to those bastions of the indie scene, actual play podcast showrunners. In the next bonus episode, which will probably drop next week, I'll be talking to Logan from Very Random Encounters, an actual play podcast where as much as possible is subjected to randomization. And for the next series, that includes the games as well. Its seasons are pretty short, so it straddles that gap between one-shot and campaign-length actual plays. It's also a lot of fun, so I encourage you to check it out. I also suggest checking out Logan's other podcast, Game Mechanics Cast, which, as an interview show for game designers, occupies a similar space to this one. I was a guest earlier in the year, and it's a great listen. If you like Yes Indeed Pod, you're going to love Game Mechanics Cast. One final piece of business this week. The inaugural issue of the Indie Zine has just gone live on Itch.io and DriveThruRPG, featuring games, articles and supplements from all across the indie scene. Although as project organiser I'm biased, I think it's pretty rad, and I'd love it if you could check it out and show it some love. All money goes back to each of the creators and is a vote of confidence in the indie TTRPG scene. All links in the episode description. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com and filmmusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.